Well, just about one year from now, we'll mark the 500-year anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. When you come to think of the Reformation, you think of names like Martin Luther, John Calvin. But there were other important figures. One notable figure was Ulrich Zwingli, who led the Reformation in Switzerland. Just five years after Luther, he was already making strides in reforming the, the church there. Switzerland was a divided nation, though. Half of the cantons or states wanted to remain Catholic, while the other half followed Zwingli into reform. Zwingli had some interaction with Luther, Luther, who was just across the border in Germany. They met together in 1529. One of the issues that was holding the Protestant Reformation back was the Lord's Supper, or they called it then Eucharist. They had different views, and if they could only unite, they'd be so much stronger against the Catholic persecutions. The issue specifically was over the real presence of Jesus in the Lord's Supper. The Catholics, of course, believed in what may be called transubstantiation, which is their belief that the actual bread and cup turn into the literal body and blood of Jesus, that is, re-sacrifice for sins. Luther rejected that view, but he still held to a form of the real presence of Jesus. He said, in, with, and under the elements, that view became known as consubstantiation. Simply means the elements don't turn into Jesus, but he's still present with them. But Zwingli, he reformed that view even further, believing the bread and wine to merely symbolize Christ's presence. This is known as the memorial view. When Jesus said, this is my body, he was being figurative. Zwingli maintained that no real presence of Jesus is found in the elements, but the sacrament was given to memorialize Christ's death. Unfortunately, although Luther and Zwingli came to agree on pretty much everything, they could not come to agree on the Lord's Supper, and they left that meeting divided. Meanwhile, back at home, the states were continuing to divide in Switzerland. And then in October 1531, the Catholics launched a surprise attack against the Protestants. They marched with 7,000 men on Zurich. Zwingli led a hastily armed men, a group of 3,500 men, to fight them. The battle was short, and Zwingli was killed. But he wasn't just killed. After killing him, they also decapitated him. Then they quartered him by tying his four limbs to horses. Then they burned him. Then they mixed his ashes with dung. Then they scattered his ashes over the countryside. All that was done so as to send a, a firm message to other would-be reformers. This is what you get for messing with transubstantiation and the Catholic Church. And believe it or not, in those years, both Catholics and Protestants were responsible for killing people basically over their view of the Lord's Supper. In fact, thousands were killed over their view of communion. It's hard to believe. And this is the one ordinance that's supposed to bring together God's people, yet many have died over it. In fact, Christians have been dying over the Lord's Supper since the very beginning of the church. Since the church's inception, Christians have been killed over the Lord's Supper. Only back then, at the beginning of the church, it wasn't their view of the Lord's Supper that got them killed. It was the manner in which they took it. And it wasn't the church or the state doing the killing. It was God himself. Surprised. Maybe you are, but, but don't think I'm making this up. This is merely what Paul said in a stunning passage from 1 Corinthians 11. Speaking of communion, he said in verse 29, For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. 
For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. And sleep is an obvious euphemism for death. So amazingly, we learn that not a few, but many people had gotten sick or died in the Corinthian church. Why? Not for their view of the Lord's Supper, but for the manner in which they took it. They had done it in the wrong way, and it was so serious to God that it led to some of their deaths. This is a stunning revelation when you think about it. First, it makes you wonder how many people might be sick or dead today because they abused the Lord's Supper. Does does God still do that? We don't have eyes to see that causality, but it makes us wonder, does God still do that? And other questions come up now. Why would God do that? Why is this such a big deal? Why is the manner of taking the Lord's Supper so important? And if it is so important, what does it mean to observe in an unworthy manner? How can we avoid this? What does it mean to judge the body rightly? What, what does the unworthy matter even mean? Well, it stands to reason that God's view of the importance of the Lord's Supper hasn't changed. This is still paramount to God in importance. So this becomes to us a very big deal. It's something we need to, to figure out. Here on Sunday mornings, we're in between Bible book studies. That's given me the opportunity to preach on a few extra issues or a few extra passages. And this one here in 1 Corinthians 11 has been on the back of my mind for a while. I'm not going to be preaching through 1 Corinthians 11 anytime soon. So I figured why not just single out this passage for one time. Furthermore, I've been wanting to round out some teaching I did before on the Lord's Supper. Not too long ago, you all know, we were in the the Gospel of Mark, which we finished. And back in Mark 14, we spent several weeks studying the passage where Jesus himself instituted the Lord's Supper. We explored the true meaning of the bread and the cup as Christ meant it. In case you're wondering, there we firmly landed on that memorial view, same as Zwingli. You can find those sermons on the meaning of the Lord's Supper on our website from Mark 14. But in addition to getting the meaning of the Lord's Supper right, you also have to get the manner of the Lord's Supper right. And that's something we didn't cover back in Mark. It doesn't really talk about it too much in Mark. It's really found here in 1 Corinthians 11. And here we learn it is apparently just as important to get the manner of communion right as it is the meaning. So that's what I want us to figure out today. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul has a lot to say about how we come together to remember Christ. So what we want to do is not so much rehash the meaning of this Lord's Supper, but now dive into the manner in which we come together to take it. Specifically, we're going to go through 1 Corinthians 11, verses 17 through 34, to better understand the practice of the Lord's Supper so that we would not partake in an unworthy manner. Simple as that. To better understand the practice of the Lord's Supper so that we would not partake in an unworthy manner. This passage divides itself up very easily into three parts. We find the Lord's Supper abused, the Lord's Supper observed, and the Lord's Supper prepared. So let's begin with this. Number one, the Lord's Supper abused. And if you haven't, open your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. That's where we'll be all morning. 1 Corinthians 11. Starting with the Lord's Supper abused. The first couple points will be quick. They're more for context. We're really getting down to that, that third section. But first, some background. 
In 1 Corinthians 11 through 14, Paul is addressing the issue of worship in the church. The Corinthian church had a lot of problems. One of them was their worship. Specifically, it was all out of order. So Paul writes to, to bring it back into order, concerning the issues specifically of women's roles, the Lord's Supper, and spiritual gifts. We're turning our attention to that middle issue here in the middle of chapter 11. So we start in verse 17 where he transitions and says, but in giving this instruction, I do not praise you because you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. He actually began chapter 11 by praising them because they had heeded his previous instructions. But now in this new matter, he's he's not going to praise them. We will see very shortly, this has to do with their observance of the Lord's Supper. Whatever they were doing wrong, it was serious such that their church gatherings were for the worse, not the better. It would have been better if they didn't even meet, basically. How so? Well, he explains, verse 18, For, in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you. And in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. If the notion of divisiveness in the Corinthian church sounds familiar, that's because Paul already rebuked them several times for it in this letter. Within the church, schisma or schisms, factions had arisen. Like a piece of wood that is splintering apart, so the church was already dividing up into little groups and factions. A spirit of jealousy and strife had pervaded the Corinthian church. Of course, that's antithetical to the nature and the purpose of the church, which is the one body of Christ. And Paul had received a report of their divisiveness, and he's already addressed it before in this letter. But here again in chapter 11, he brings it up again, this time in connection with the Lord's Supper. That's the last place where divisiveness should be found. But it was. Given the morally deplorable situation in the church, he wasn't terribly surprised. Still, it's a serious problem. He says in verse 20, Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry, and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? And this, I will not praise you. Now, you could benefit from a little more background. You notice in verse 20, the reference to the Lord's Supper. It's also apparent that in these verses, a larger meal was taking place. Indeed, there was. Back then, it was called a love feast, from the Greek word agape. This is a religious communal meal adopted by the early Christians. And you guys know, table fellowship, sharing a meal together, was one of the earliest hallmarks of the Christian church. And all all too often, these meals were connected to the Lord's Supper. They would have a meal and observe the Lord's Supper. In a short time, these meals became organized into feasts called love feasts. In reality, it was really just a big in-home potluck. Churches back then, they met in people's homes. They would gather in a home. Everyone would bring food. They would eat together. And at the end of their supper, they would have the Lord's Supper. But with that that little background in mind, you can understand some of the abuses he mentions in verses 20 through 22. For one, there was selfishness, verse 21. 
It's like there was a run on the food, and it was every man for himself. You also have the rich who are despising the poor. The picture we get is that at these potlucks or love feasts, the rich would bring more food and better food, while the poor would bring little to nothing. That should have been fine. But the rich Corinthians apparently started to resent the poor. They would get to the food first and gorge themselves and leave just table scraps for the poor who felt shamed and and despised. And just God forbid if this ever happened here, but just imagine this situation. You know, we have these church potlucks every couple of months. So just pretend you've got a group of wealthy people in the church. They decide to to give a real treat, so they bring something like crab legs or or something like that for the church. But when they show up, they, they see what everyone else has brought, and they become embittered because people just brought a can of beans, can of vegetables, and they're thinking, you know, we don't want to eat all that. We spent all this money on seafood. So during the sermon, this wealthy group of people, they, they slip out of the back of the church. They head over to the fellowship hall. They pig out on all the nice food. I mean, they, they brought it, right? And they leave nothing for the poor. And eventually church dismisses. We go over next door. There's just cans of beans left. And that's it. How, how would you feel? That's basically what was happening at these love feasts. The rich were despising and shaming the poor. Add to this drunkenness, verse 21. Some people were treating it like a party, like a dinner party. And you have a real sad picture of the church's communion. Speaking of communion, the whole purpose for these love feasts was for the, the church to celebrate the Lord's Supper. But you can see how that would have been a total mockery of the spirit of the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper was meant to be a solemn celebration of Christ, which also reflects the church's oneness. If the way they were acting it, it was not possible. So he says when they gather, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper, meaning there's no way they could properly observe the Lord's Supper with these actions and attitudes. He says, can't they eat and drink at home? He's not endorsing gluttony or drunkenness. He's just expressing outrage over the callousness which with they were supposedly remembering Christ. So once again, he says, I will not praise you, verse 22. Abuses like these eventually led to the extinction of these love feasts. Over time, communion meal and and the the love feast meal were separated and the the love feast disappeared altogether. That's not really the point, though. The point is that they had totally lost sight of the purpose of the Lord's Supper, which is why they were gathering. So a reminder was in order. This brings us to number two, the Lord's Supper observed. The Lord's Supper abused, now the Lord's Supper observed. Again, I'll be brief at this point. I basically preached three sermons on on this part. But look at verses 23 through 26. He says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Here's a familiar passage which most churches recite as their baseline reminder for the Lord's Supper. Here Paul recalls the essential meaning of this memorial meal which we are to call to mind when we participate. 
Notice verse 23. This is something Paul has already delivered to them. So they know this. They know what this meal is supposed to be about, namely remembering Christ. This is not just some tradition. Remember, the Lord's Supper was instituted by Christ himself, which was passed down and handed down through the apostles. Paul received this from the Lord, either indirectly through the apostles or directly maybe through special revelation. But either way, the purpose is clear. This is to be a memorial meal. In this ordinance that Jesus prescribed, there's just two elements, a little piece of bread and a cup of wine. Both are symbols where Jesus takes the known and the familiar and infuses them with meaning to teach us the unknown and the unfamiliar. And in this case, both of these elements represent his life, the life of Jesus, connection we made back in Mark 14. The body represents, or rather the bread represents his body. Jesus came as the bread of life. The cup represents his blood, his life force. And so there, it is his life, but obviously his life was given over to death. So they become symbols of his death as well. For his body was broken and his blood was shed for us. It's a reminder of his life given unto death for us. And in that death, Jesus inaugurated a covenant, a new covenant, a covenant of salvation whereby we could be granted eternal life. As you know, Jesus did not die for his own sins. He died for our sins. And as we come to believe in him, an exchange takes place where our sins are are forgiven and eternal life is granted unto us. Christ is able to, to do this, of course, to grant us forgiveness in life because he didn't stay dead himself. He paid the price in full and rose on the third day in victory. And this is all a part of what we're remembering when We eat this little piece of bread and drink a little tiny cup of grape juice. We do this to remember. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. Meaning chiefly his life given to death for us. So when you think about it, what we find is that by definition, the Lord's Supper must be a solemn celebration. A solemn celebration celebration kind of sounds like an oxymoron how can you have a celebration if you're solemn but it does fit let me explain inherent in this act of remembrance is christ's death and inherent in christ's death is our sins so when remembering his work we can't escape the remembrance of our own sin and guilt and condemnation before god it was our sin which held him there that's the death that we deserved. You can't take that lightly. That's not something to be joked about or ignored. If you really believe, it produces solemnity and and reverence. But it's still a celebration because although we might mourn over our sin for a moment, it should quickly turn to, to gladness because the price was paid. And that's the whole point. We're sad at the price paid, but we're happy that the price was paid. Because through it, we receive not eternal death, which we deserved, but eternal life. That, that's, that's the good news. That, that is enough to make you celebrate, to make you smile, to make you thankful. So you put these together, you have a, a solemn celebration. There's joy and delight, but earnestness and seriousness. 
All of you know the image of, of the six Marines hoisting that flag on Iwo Jima, World War II. It's such a brutal and historic battle, but our guys won. And you can see a memorial to that victory and to the Marines today in D.C., that, that Iwo Jima memor- memorial. And if you've ever been there, it gives you a sense of joy and pride to remember the victory our guys won back then. But at the same time, that victory came with sacrifice, a fact made evident by the fact that that memorial stands at the entrance to a cemetery, the Arlington National Cemetery, where thousands of those who died to win that victory are buried. That should give you pause. You rejoice in that victory, yes, but solemnly, with reverence, with respect. You rejoice, but not frivolously or carelessly or callously. And this is what Jesus intended with the Lord's Supper. It's our memorial meal. And every time we approach should be with celebration, with reverence and respect. A great victory was won, but a high price was paid. So this is not a frivolous party, but it is a a solemn celebration. Well, there's a lot more I can say about the Lord's Supper here. But again, we're not trying to be exhaustive with these verses. We're, We're just trying to get to the point of the bread and the cup. The Corinthians missed this. They failed to remember Christ inwardly and outwardly. They failed to prepare their hearts. They failed to come with remembrance, which led them to come without reverence. And so Paul has so far detailed the Lord's Supper abused and the Lord's Supper observed how it should be done. And now we come to some final warnings and instructions on how to get it right. He went from how they screwed things up to here's what the thing is all about. And now here's how you partake it in the right way with some warnings. So we come to number three, the Lord's Supper prepared. The Lord's Supper prepared. And of course, we're not talking about the physical preparation. Yes, someone has to cut up a piece of bread and pour grape juice into tiny little cups that have no other purpose. But, And that's good stuff. We're thankful for that service. But that's not the preparation we're talking about here. Rather, verse 27, he says, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself. And in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. As he said, the Lord's Supper, it's not some flippant thing that we do. We rightly reject the ritualism, the sacramentalism of the Catholic Church. That doesn't turn the Lord's Supper into some empty memorial for us. It's still a means of grace. Ordinary grace, not saving grace. But nonetheless, to abuse this ordinance turns it into a means of guilt. It can become a means of guilt. That's what he says, right? To partake in an unworthy manner makes you guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. That's what he just said. Now, of course, we want to know what does that mean? Well, when you partake of the bread and the cup, what are you really doing? You are participating in the death of Jesus. What does that mean? Well, that's what Paul said just the chapter before, in chapter 10, verse 16. What does he say? Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing 
in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Look, we obviously, we're not adding to his death. We're not re-sacrificing Christ in any means. But as we remember his death, we are presently entering into its benefits. This is why we call it communion. Because in partaking, we are communing with him and his saving death. And notice we also commune with one another. This brings us into communion with one another. There's a a horizontal and and a vertical element here. So here's the deal. When you abuse or mock the bread and the cup, you're actually mocking Christ's death. It's like if someone today burned an American flag, they wouldn't be showing contempt for that little piece of cloth, but for the country which it represents. And likewise, when you make light of the bread and the cup, you're not offending some bread and wine. You are offending the Lord himself. You are making a mockery of his death which means you're basically joining the side of those who mocked him and killed him. Instead of finding blessing in the Lord's Supper, you find guilt, the same guilt as those who killed him and made mockery of his body and blood the first time. This is serious stuff. And needless to say, you don't want to partake in an unworthy manner. This, of course, begs the question, What's that all about? What does it mean to partake in an unworthy manner? Well, first, this word for unworthy that he uses here, verse 27, it's an adverb modifying the verbs to eat and to drink. So it's talking about participating in an unworthy way. Now, that sounds, okay, simple, obvious, but that's actually a crucial distinction to make because countless throughout history have wrongly thought that Paul is talking about unworthy people. He's not talking about unworthy people, but unworthy participation. And there's a world of difference. There's absolutely no sense that only worthy people may eat of the Lord's Supper. And that's good news, because there are no worthy people. The only people that may approach the Lord's table are sinners, because that's all there are. If sinners were not invited to the Lord's table, table, it would be forever empty. But of course, that's the whole point. We rejoice because we're invited to the Lord's table where we don't belong. But through his saving death, we are made to belong. Like the communion hymn goes that we'll sing later this this morning, two wonders that I confess, my worth and my unworthiness. We, We are unworthy to approach God, to sit at his table. We don't belong. Yet he fixed our worth at the price of his son's life. And now through that, we are made worthy in Christ and enabled to sit at his table. And that's the only reason. People lose sight of that when they take the Lord's Supper. So maybe this is you. You, you sit down, you're, you're going to take the bread and the cup. You ask yourself some questions you think you should ask. Like, hey, did I have a good week? Was I a good Christian this week or did I screw up? Am I worthy? Those are all the wrong questions to ask. It's not about your worth. You're not worthy. That's the answer. Sadly, some people sometimes think they're worthy. And that's a surefire way to partake in an unworthy manner. Because see what you're doing? You're relying on self-effort. I had a good week. I was a good Christian this week. I'm worthy to take. No, you're not. 
It's not about your effort, your worth at all. It's all about Christ's effort and his worth. That's what you're remembering. So I wanted to not get that out of the way, but establish that. That's a big point. We're not talking about unworthy people. We're talking about unworthy participation. That's the problem here. That's still, we still have that question though. Okay. That being said, what does it still mean to come in an unworthy manner? What is that all about? Well, it still boils down to sin. Sinners are welcome at Christ's table, but sin is not. You can't bring sin to that table. That's what the Corinthians were doing. They brought all these sins against God to the table, so to speak. Licentiousness, drunkenness, selfishness. They had sin in relation to one another, divisiveness, factiousness, strife, enmity. We're not talking about perfection here. We're talking about unrepentant sin. We all come to Christ's table as unworthy sinners every single Sunday. What makes us worthy by his grace is merely our our repentance and faith in him. Through salvation, Christ removes the dividing wall of sin. He brings us into communion with God and one another. But if you're holding on to sin in your life, be it before God or others, you're forsaking that communion and effectively throwing back up that dividing wall. You're saying that you regard this sin higher than the Lord of the table. That is an unworthy manner. To come in an unworthy manner means to fail to consider your communion with God and others and to fail to live in light of that communion by holding on to sin. We're talking about playing the hypocrite refusing to repent of sin before God, thereby making a mockery of your communion with him and the body. The Lord's Supper is not some ritual. Reciting a few words and taking a bite of bread means nothing to God if your heart is not right before him. And that happens when you have a higher regard for the sin in your life than for the Lord himself. Thankfully, there is a solution to this problem. How can you avoid coming in an unworthy manner? Well, there are two things. He says you must judge yourself and judge the body. Judge yourself, judge the body. Verse 28, he says first, but a man must examine himself. And in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So first you have to judge the self and only then eat and drink. See, this is not optional. Self-examination must precede partaking the Lord's Supper. And furthermore, this is a present active imperative. It's a command, meaning this is not a one-time thing. This is every time you partake, you are examining self, judging self. What are you checking for? Again, this is not scorekeeping where you're asking, you know, did I have a good week? Did I do more good than bad? Did I, did I sin too much? It's not what you're asking. It's not about your self-worth and self-effort. Instead, you're checking for two things. Negatively, you're checking for hypocrisy, for unconfessed sin and rebellion in your heart, anything you've been previously unwilling to give up. If you find something, then obviously repent. The Lord will immediately forgive you, and then you can partake with sincerity. A special note here. You're checking for hypocrisy in relation to the body, the church. Your horizontal communion is a big deal. 
This is a, a huge element of the Lord's Supper. Preached a whole sermon on your horizontal communion with one another, with the church. Jesus, though, basically said the same thing over in Matthew 5, 23. Talking about our worship to God through our offerings, he says, Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled before your brother, and then come and present your offering. And in principle, it's pretty much what he's saying here at the Lord's Supper. You can't hold on to this sin against others and partake of this meal. Again, before God and others, you can't bring sin to Christ's table. So if any unconfessed sin is found, just repent, be humble, be made right, and then come in true communion. So to examine self, you're looking for two things. Negatively, for hypocrisy. Positively, you're looking for faith. That's it, for faith. I mean, what is the basis of your worth in Christ? It is, it's not how you did last week. It's not your performance. It is simply faith. Your faith in him, your trust in him. And that's what you're looking for, affirming your faith that you still believe. Are you counting him worthy? Are you trusting in him and his righteousness to clothe you? Are you still in the faith? Well, then proceed. This part is really no different than the continual self-examination we're told to do all the time. Paul says over in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, this command to all Christians, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves, or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test. See, we're to test ourselves all the time. What are we looking for? Not our performance. It's that Christ is in us, and we are in him by faith. You put these together negatively, searching for that hypocrisy, positively affirming your faith. And this is how the Lord's Supper has such a purifying impact on the church. It's just like Passover in the Old Testament. As you approach in a worthy manner, God uses this ordinance to actually build up your faith and your holiness in the Lord. I'll give you an example to show you how this often works. Have you ever got in a fight with your spouse on Sunday before church? Now, I'm sure this never happened to any of you guys. This would never happen at a church like this. You've never done that. Let's just use an example. A couple from another church. Some other church. But they're, they're running late. Tempers flare. A blame game ensues. The result is a sinful argument. They get to church. They're angry at one another. Unreconciled. But they're going to put on a nice face for now. They make it through the singing. They make it through the sermon. All of a sudden, Lord's Supper rolls around. What do they do? If they partake, they would be partaking in an unworthy manner. But perhaps you've experienced this. This is how God so often works on us, humbles us, and moves us to repentance. Better yet would be for that couple to reconcile right there in the pew and then to partake with gladness. This is what we're talking about here. You don't want to partake in an unworthy manner. And to avoid that, 
He says, first, you must judge yourself. Examine yourself for hypocrisy, for faith. Secondly, though, judge the body. Remember, I said two things you're, you're doing to avoid partaking in an unworthy manner. Judge self, judge the body. And so verse 29, he continues, For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. This again ties to how the Corinthians were partaking unworthily. They failed to judge the body. By this, Paul is not talking to our physical bodies or the church, the body of Christ. He's actually referring to the communion elements themselves, which represent the body and the blood of the Lord. In the context, Paul's last use of body was in verse 27, where he made mention of the body and the blood of the Lord, which are symbolized by the bread and the cup. So most see here an abbreviated reference to the body and blood of the Lord. This makes perfect sense because the Corinthian believers were failing to make a distinction between the bread of their love feast and the bread of the Lord's Supper. But those are not the same pieces of bread. Even if you're using the actual same loaf of bread, those are not the same pieces of bread. And you don't eat those pieces of bread in the same way. You don't approach this communion meal like an ordinary meal. Rather, you must judge the body rightly, meaning you actually pause to consider what this little piece of bread means and the cup as well. In other words, the point he's making is ritualism doesn't cut it. Ritualism doesn't cut it. The Corinthians, they were going through the motions, but they failed to remember Christ, thereby defeating the whole purpose. This is actually their deeper problem. Their lack of remembrance was at the root of their lack of reverence and repentance. And the same thing can happen today. Remember that God hates mere outward ritual, devoid of a person's heart. Even regarding his own prescribed ordinances, if you're just going through the motions, God despises it. And so God said to, to Israel in Isaiah chapter 1, he hated their sacrifices. He had prescribed them, but they were coming with unclean hands, and unprepared hearts, so he wanted nothing to do with it. Likewise, Jesus rebuked the hypocritical Pharisees, saying, Matthew 15, 8, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. The Corinthians fell into the same trap. Celebrating the Lord's Supper is not something you can do mindlessly. This is no mere ritual. You must actively judge self, and you must actively judge the body. You have to engage and remember, call to mind what this is about. Bringing your heart in line with Christ in worship. You must judge the body, calling to mind Christ's sacrifice, responding from the heart with true reverence and worship. So another example. Let's say you're having a distracted day at church. You're watching the clock a lot. You're thinking about lunch, maybe secretly looking at your phone, checking football scores. Then suddenly this piece of bread rolls around and you think, oh, I, I guess it's communion Sunday. So you take the little piece of bread. Your mind continues to wander. Eventually you see everyone popping it back, so you, you eat as well. But in eating, you have just partaken in an unworthy manner. Same for the cup. Why? You failed to judge the body and the blood. You lacked remembrance. 
that led you to lack reverence and repentance. All you have left is ritual, but God doesn't care about that mere ritual. Even worse, that greatly displeases God, for in partaking, you've actually made a mockery of Christ's death. And like we said earlier, that makes you guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. This is serious stuff, partaking in an unworthy manner. And if you want to know how serious, look at verse 30. He says, for this reason, meaning their failure to judge self, their failure to judge the body, they're partaking in an unworthy manner. For this reason, many among you are sick, are weak and sick, and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. This is sadly how a means of grace becomes a means of guilt, even judgment. Paul clearly connects the dots between abusing the Lord's Supper and sickness, even death. That God is behind this is clear from verse 32. This is God's doing. It might sound shocking to you, but if you know the context, it's really not. Back in chapter 10, Paul reiterated a bunch of times how the Lord used sickness and death to discipline Israel and to make Israel holy despite their wilderness wanderings. So, for example, back in chapter 10, verse 8, he mentions how 23,000 fell in one day. That's because God killed them. Or verse 9, you must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. You see, God made examples out of them for us and also for the purity of his people. This is a reflection of God's absolute holiness. But history was repeating itself with these Corinthians and others like Ananias and Sapphira, for example. So God was making examples out of them too. Now, nothing in this text says God still does this, but nothing says he doesn't either. And Paul is not saying that every time a Christian gets sick or dies, it's because they sinned or abused the Lord's Supper. We know that certainly to not be the case. But he is showing how seriously God takes this abuse. And God certainly reserves the right to inflict sickness as a form of discipline on his own children. To be sure, this is talking about God's fatherly discipline of his children and not condemnation. It's not talking about sending people to hell here. Romans 8.1, there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. This, these people are still saved and forgiven in Christ. In fact, here in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul uses the word for discipline, not the word for condemnation. The Lord disciplines those he loves that they would not be condemned. Isn't that what verse 32 says? He says, but when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So this is basically God spiritually spanking his children, showing them the seriousness of sin. And like Hebrews 12.10 says, God disciplines us for our good so that we may share his, what? holiness. This is how God purifies his church. And the Lord's Supper is so important to God that sometimes he will even take people out over it. There, are, there have been some true believers who are nonetheless entangled in sin, and God once again reserves the right to take them out that their sin would not spread among his church. 
His grace is greater than all our sin. And again, we're not talking about condemnation here. But this doesn't mean God won't discipline you to show you the folly of your ways. Do not put Christ to the test. That's the point. Many of you have had friends or relatives who went to the Vietnam War who died in Vietnam. So I bet the Vietnam Memorial is very special to you. How would you feel if a bunch of teenagers came and and totally defaced it and scratched it and destroyed the Vietnam Memorial? How would you feel? You'd be outraged. Well, the Lord's Supper, it is an infinitely more valuable memorial to God. And so he is way more outraged when his own children deface it, so to speak. Rather, verse 31, judge yourself rightly and you'll not be judged. Again, that's the answer. You need not fear or dread the Lord's Supper, like you're playing Russian roulette every time. That, that's not at all what he's saying. That's not at all the point here. But you must approach with remembrance leading to reverence. You must judge the body and self. Then partake with sincerity, with gladness of heart. This actually becomes a very freeing thing when you recognize this is all about Christ's worth, not your own. And despite your sin, you're forgiven in his grace. And it's, it's, it's a freeing time, actually. Not a casual time, though. It's not an ordinary meal. In rejecting the Catholic sacramental view, some have gone off the other deep end and turned the Lord's Supper into basically an irrelevant ritual. But this is extremely relevant to God. So Paul tells the Corinthians, look, you can eat and drink on your own. Just to finish the chapter, verse 33, he says, So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. The Lord's Supper, it's the one and only ongoing ordinance given to the church. Baptism, it's one and done. But we are meant to do this until Christ returns. And so this is not just a a bite of bread and a sip of juice. This is communion with Christ and his church. It is participation in his death where that past act comes into the present, present. And as we believe, we partake of its benefits. Through this, we abide in Christ. He abides in us. We gain spiritual nourishment and the church gains purity and unity. This is the grace and the joy of the Lord's Supper. But come in the right manner for the right reasons or else this blessing can be a curse for you. You do not need to fear this time or walk on eggshells. You just need to approach humbly with remembrance that will lead you to reverence, rightly judging the body and the self then embrace this time. You should look forward to it and let it purify you. There's nothing better for the soul than this time of self-examination and remembrance of Christ. Continual encouragement that despite your bad week, you're still worthy in him. It's meant to be a, a freeing reminder. This is not a time of dread or discouragement because you had a bad week. Otherwise, this is a time of blessing and encouragement. It's a reminder that no matter how bad a week you had, we're still perfectly righteous in Christ. Not to excuse our sin, but to glory in his grace. It's a reminder that we'll never be worthy on our own. 
but we've already been made worthy in him. It's a reminder that Christ has already accomplished for us everything we need. And we're so prone to forget. So we need these reminders as often as we eat and drink until he comes. For these reminders help us carry on. Christ has already given us all things. And so as we remember him, so we are renewed into giving him our entire lives as worship, praise, and honor of which he is so worthy until he returns. So as you partake, today, this Sunday, every time we do it, come with remembrance, come with reverence, come with right hearts, and then celebrate the joy, the freedom that is found in Christ until he returns. Let us pray. Our great God, we we pause before you this morning carefully, yet also joyfully remembering the high price paid for our forgiveness, our salvation, our redemption. You have snatched us out of the pit. You have redeemed us from our own sin and, and Satan and death. You have saved us, Lord, through Christ, through this highest price ever paid, the price of your own son. Yet he did not stay dead. He rose victoriously. And in him, we have victory too over sin and Satan and death. We are made new and brought into life. And this is something we need to remember and not take lightly. Our minds need to be renewed in this truth afresh every single day even. For this is the basis of our worth in you. Lord, we don't want to sin, yet we are still sinners. We are unworthy. But in Christ and in this Lord's Supper, we have a continual reminder of of his worth, his righteousness, his victory. And that's all we need. So may we come with this remembrance and reverence. You are a holy God and you call us to be holy. We continually pray you forgive us our sins and, and, and guard us from hidden faults. May hypocrisy not be found in us. But as we approach, may we also delight in, in this price paid and just sing for joy that Christ our Redeemer has come and, and we are now already hid with him on high. Bless us, keep us safe, keep us in this reminder always free from hypocrisy, free from forgetfulness, free from ritualism. And may we worship you each time we partake. In Christ's name we pray, amen.